Well, happy Easter weekend. Man, it's so good to have you all here at the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. And I just want to, like Clark mentioned a moment ago, I just want to express that if you're a guest with us here tonight, thank you so much for being here. We count it just an absolute honor that you would spend some time with us here on this Easter weekend as we get a chance to kind of celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so thanks for taking some time and carving that out in the midst of your Easter plans. Uh, We are in a series, we're actually finishing a series tonight, if you are just kind of jumping in, uh, that we've been calling Questioning Jesus. And just to give you kind of a quick recap as to what it is that we've been talking about in this series, uh, just pretty simply what we've been doing is we've been looking together at some of the most penetrating questions that Jesus asked. And so just kind of as a way of review, what we found in this series is actually really fascinating. Uh, We said that when you go through the Gospels, which are kind of like the biographies of the life of Jesus in the Bible, you said what you find is that Jesus actually asked a staggering 307 questions. Uh, that Jesus really asked a mind-blowing amount of questions. And if you were to ever go through the gospel and look at Jesus' interactions, you would probably be shocked at the amount of questions that he asked. We said in comparison to that, that Jesus himself was only asked 183 questions. And so what we said is, we said that in most of Jesus' interactions, he was the one who was doing the questioning. And then what we said was really fascinating was this, was that Jesus rarely gave direct answers when someone would ask him a question. And so what you see, again, in the Gospels is that when someone would ask Jesus a question, most often he would answer the question with a question. Or sometimes he would answer the question with a parable, which sometimes was kind of like a short story, and that would end with a question. And we said, here's what we've been saying. We've been saying that all of this really kind of reveals to us just that Jesus implemented questions in a pretty heavy way. And we said that really probably the the most probable reason that Jesus implemented so many questions is not so much that he was seeking after information. We said most likely what Jesus was doing is he was seeking after transformation, uh, that Jesus, being an excellent teacher, he understood the value of a great question. Jesus understood that there is nothing that can cause a complete mental turnaround like that of a question. Uh, Jesus understood that questions have the ability to cause us to really call into question all that we think. And so because of that, I believe Jesus asked so many questions. And so in the series, and what we've been doing is each week we've been looking at a different penetrating question that Jesus asked. And, and again, we've been in this series kind of going to Jesus, not simply for the answers, but first and foremost, we've been going to Jesus for the questions. And our hope has been that as we look at some of the penetrating questions that Jesus asked, that maybe we might be transformed as a result of it, okay? So that's what we've been doing. Like I said, today we're actually finishing this series, and that actually means a couple of things. Because we're finishing this series, the first thing it means is it means that there have been several other conversations that happened previous to this. And so if, if that is intriguing to you at all, if you would want to go back and listen to some of the previous questions that we've looked at, I would encourage you to do that. I would invite you to do that. And so you can go to our website. There should be some information in your program. And uh, if you go to our website, you can watch or listen to or subscribe to our podcast. All of that is for free. And we'd encourage you to catch up on this series. And the second thing it means is this, is it means that next week, like Clark mentioned a moment ago, we are starting a brand new series. And we are really excited about this series. Um, If you are someone who is investigating grace and you're trying to figure out what's this church all about, man, we would encourage you to lock in next week as we're starting a brand new series. It's called The Everyday Revolution. I am really excited about this series. And uh, like Clark mentioned, we're looking at something the Bible calls the household codes. And really what that is, is it's everyday life. 
And so it's things like uh, marriage and parenting and singleness and uh, generations, older and younger, and gender issues and things like that. We're going to be talking about all of that in this series. And so if you're in a place where your marriage needs help, you need help in parenting, you need help in your singleness, you need help with whatever, this is just going to be a phenomenal series. And we'd encourage you to lock in for that kind of starting next week and uh, real pumped about that. But like I said, today, we're going to be looking at the final question in this series. And I think that this final question is very fitting being that it's Easter weekend, because the question that we're going to find today is actually a question that was asked by Jesus on the very first Easter morning. In fact, what's probably not going to be surprising to you is that when Jesus raises from the dead, the first recorded words he is, he is recorded to have said come in the form, can you guess, of a question. First words Jesus says when he raises from the dead, they come in the form of of a question. And so we're going to look at that question today, the question that was asked on the first, very penetrating question that was asked on the very first Easter Sunday. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you take them with me? And we're going to turn together to John chapter 20. Okay, so John 20 is where we're going to find uh, this question uh, on the first Easter. So John chapter 20. And you can get your Bibles and you can flip there. And of course, if you did not bring a Bible with you here this evening, or if you didn't bring one in with you, that is no problem. Uh, we actually have some available for you. I think uh, in those chairs in front of you or underneath you, you could just grab one of those Bibles and you can turn to page 756 in the Bibles that we have provided. That's where you'll find John chapter 20. And then, of course, let me just say this too. If you don't own a Bible, we think it's so important that you have one, and we would encourage you just to take one of ours. Uh, seriously, you can have it. Uh, it's a gift from us to you. And so if you don't have a copy of the Bible and you would like one, we would love to give you one. We encourage you to write your name in it, read it, and we think it'd be really important that you have one. So John chapter 20, go ahead and flip there. And as you're finding John chapter 20, let me kind of set up where we're going in our conversation today a little bit, all right? So I, I believe that today hopefully it will be very clarifying as it relates to understanding the difference uh, between Christianity, following Jesus, and religion, all right? So my hope is that today is very clarifying the difference between Christianity and religion. And so let me just say that if you're a person that's here tonight and you're investigating Jesus, so if you're like, I don't really know what I believe about Jesus, I'm trying to figure it out, maybe you're not really that much of a church person, maybe you came with someone tonight, um, I I am so glad you're here. And the reason is because, um, not only because it's Easter weekend, but because if you're investigating Jesus and you're trying to figure out what Christianity is all about, my hope is that in very clear terms that you will understand what the foundation and what the heart of Christianity is all about. See, because here's what I know. Christianity is not the same thing as religion. Uh, Following Jesus and religion are actually two categorically different things that are built, built off of two different foundations. So, so maybe a good way to think about it might be like this. I believe that understanding the difference between Christianity and religion is the difference between understanding application versus implication. All right, now what do I mean by that? Well, let me kind of explain what I mean. I believe that religion, at its very core, at its very essence, is founded on application. All right, that is what religion is based off of. Christianity, following Jesus, what we're going to find today, is actually not founded on application. It includes application, but it is foundationally and centrally founded and built upon implication. Now, that might sound like semantics, so let me see if I can try to add some clarity to this. Think about it for a minute. What is application and what is implication? Well, real simply, application, as you guys all know, is based on what I do, but implication is based on what is done, something that has been done. So uh, just kind of a silly analogy, 
I want you to imagine for a minute that you are in a financially bleak situation and uh, you know, you're kind of going through a hard time financially. So you go and you, to a financial counselor and that financial counselor gives you excellent advice, excellent financial advice. What do you do with that financial advice? You apply it, right? You have to take that advice and you have to do something about it. You have to act on it if you actually want your financial situation to change. Now, I want you to imagine the same situation. You're in financial trouble and for some reason you have a rich uncle or something, right? And you find out that he has transferred $3 million into your account. Well, well all of a sudden you see that that has that reality, something has been done, that has implications. That's going to change the way you live. That's going to change the way that you interact. It's probably, you're probably going to get a nicer car, right? let's be honest. And that's going to happen because of implication. And this is the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion, Christianity is not about application. It, it includes application. Christianity is not foundationally about the good moral teachings of Jesus. That's not what Christianity is built on. Christianity is not built on the, 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 the model of the life of Jesus, that Jesus was a selfless person, so we should be selfless people. That's not what Christianity is, but it includes those things. But Christianity is built on something that has been done. It is built on an event, something that has happened. And as a result of that, there are massive implications. And of course, being Easter weekend, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. And the event that I'm referring to is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of Christianity. And that, the Christian would say, has mind-blowing and unending implications. Implications. Right? So that's what we're going to see today. My hope is to unpack that a little bit. So let's go to John chapter 20. And here we're going to find in John chapter 20 the very first original Easter. Okay, so this is the OE we're going to see here, the original Easter. All right, so John chapter 20, and, and what we're going to find here is that in John 19, some of you might remember Jesus was crucified. He was uh, buried after he, after he died, and now it has been, he's now the third day by the time we get to John chapter 20. And notice what the Bible says. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, and she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, once you notice, the Bible tells us that it was early on the first day of the week. Now, I think it's probably important to clarify. Uh, in our culture, we tend to think that the first day of the week is Monday. And the reason for that is because we, we in our culture, accept the Sabbath usually to be on Sunday. Uh, back in this culture, the Sabbath would have been on Saturday. So the first day of the week would have been Sunday. So this is the first Easter Sunday. Uh, that, that is, the, that is the, the, the day we're celebrating now 2,000 years later, right? And notice the Bible says that on that first day of the week, early in the morning, while it was still dark, so it must have been real early, notice who the Bible says the first person was who went to the tomb. The Bible says Mary Magdalene was the first person who went to the grave, went to the tomb of Jesus. Now, real quick, who is this? Who is Mary Magdalene? Because let's be honest, right? There are a lot of Marys in the Bible. Uh, you have Mary, who was like the mom of Jesus, Mary. Uh, you have Mary, who had a sister named Martha or something like that, Mary, right? And, and then you have this other Mary, Mary Magdalene. Now, who is this lady? Well, let me just give you a little bit about her. Mary Magdalene was actually one of Jesus's female disciples, 
See, I don't know if you knew this. Uh, we always, when we think of Jesus' disciples, we always think of the 12 dudes who followed Jesus around. But the Bible actually tells us that Jesus had more than just 12 disciples, that he actually had a group of female disciples who played an integral part in his ministry. In fact, did you know this, that whenever Jesus' female disciples are listed, guess who's always listed first in that? Mary Magdalene. And I think what that explains to us is it tells us that Mary was a woman who was deeply devoted to Jesus. Uh, She was a strong disciple. She had put her faith, her hope, and her trust in Christ, just like the other disciples had. Matter of fact, we are told that Mary herself, she was a beneficiary of the ministry of Jesus. When we first meet her in Luke chapter 8, the Bible says that she had seven demons and Jesus healed her of that. I have no idea what that must have looked like or what that, what that went down like, so don't even ask because I'm not sure. But she was in a tough place when she met Jesus and Jesus interacted with her in just an amazing way. And the Bible says as a result of that, she was one of the disciples of Jesus. And so Mary Magdalene is the first one there. But then notice the Bible says when she got there, she, she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so many of you might know back in ancient times, if you had a tomb uh, in ancient times, they would roll a giant stone over the entrance of that tomb. And that would be, you know, that was a really, really heavy, heavy stone that they would roll there. And the Bible says when Mary got there, that she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so what did she do? Well, verse two, check this out. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. And she said, notice what she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. I think it's fascinating, by the way, notice that Mary's first reaction to seeing the empty tomb is not not to conclude that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, why is that? Because Mary, just like you and I, was a very logical person. And if you went to an empty tomb, my guess is that the last thing you would think is the person raised from the dead. You would think logically. You would say, no, someone probably stole the body. That's the most reasonable explanation. So the Bible says that she she thought that someone stole the body of Jesus, so she ran to go tell. Notice who the Bible says she went to tell Peter. Simon Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. And then look at this one. The Bible says the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. Oh, that's interesting. Now, who's this guy? What disciple is this? Well, it's fascinating because commentators almost unanimously agree that the disciple who Jesus loved, that who that's referring to, is actually John. And so John, you might not know this, John, the one who wrote this book, the book of John, is actually one of Jesus' disciples. He was actually one of the disciples who was the closest to Jesus on his time, in his time here on earth. So Mary goes, she tells Peter, she tells John, then what happens in verse 3? So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. And verse four, this never gets old to me. I love this. Look at verse four. Both were running. Look at this. But the other disciple outran Peter and he reached the tomb first. (laughs) Now, let me just ask you a question real quick. Who was the other disciple again? Remind me. John. (laughs) And so I think it's funny that John deems it necessary to tell us (laughs) that when he and Peter ran to the tomb, that he won, right? (laughs) I almost, I can only, I, I almost imagine John writing this book. Like, I can just imagine him being like, it was terrible. It was awful. You know, the, the circumstances, Jesus was dead. Our hopes were dashed, you know. Mary came running to us, you know, frantic because someone stole the body of Jesus. And so Peter and I ran to the tomb and it was awful. It was terrible. And not that it matters, but just for the record, I totally smoked Peter. <laughs> He's like crushed him, right? And he just, he just puts that in there. I love that he adds that. You can't make this stuff up. The Bible's just way too awesome. So verse five. 
He bent over and he looked at the strips. John bent over and looked at the strips of linen. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along, look, behind him. Like, all right, we get it, man, right? And he went straight into the tomb. So the Bible says they got there. John went in for, John peered in, but he didn't go in. Then Peter went in. Then look at this. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, this is actually kind of interesting. The Bible explains to us that when Peter went into the tomb, that the burial linens, that the linen strips, which would have been the burial cloths, uh, that they were laying in one place, and that the, the, the shroud that would have covered Jesus' face was laying in another place. And what's really interesting is if you have a, if you have a different translation, which you might, uh, instead of saying that the cloth was still lying in its place, a more literal translation is it was folded up neatly. And so you might have a translation that says that, that says Jesus' burial cloths were in one place and then folded up neatly was this, this face cloth that he had This was kind of in another place, which I think is really important. And the reason is because uh, I believe that that is one piece of evidence among many that Jesus' body was not stolen. Uh, because think about it. If you were a grave robber, why would you take the time to unravel the burial cloths, to take off one of them and to fold them uh, that would make no sense. And on top of that, the burial cloths were actually worth money. And so if you were a thief, you would want to take those as well. And why would you take the time to fold it up? That's a very tidy burglar, right? And so this is just probably good evidence. I think this is evidence that there's two miracles that occurred here. The first one is that Jesus rose from the dead. And the second one is that a single man folded his clothes, right? So those are two <laughs> miracles there, right? So check this out. And then verse 8. Finally, the other disciple, right? That's John, who had reached the tomb first... All right. Also went inside and he saw and he believed. Now, this is interesting. The Bible says when John went into the tomb that he saw and he believed. Now, now the interesting thing is, what is it that he believed? See, because we don't really know what it is that he believed. The Bible, we don't know if he believed that Jesus rose from the dead. We don't know if he believed that Jesus' body wasn't stolen. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But verse 9 is really strange in light of this. Because look at what verse 9 says. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Isn't that fascinating? John goes out of his way to say they didn't understand that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then look at verse 10. So the disciples went back to where they were staying. They just went home. Which this is really interesting. I think it's probably worth mentioning at this point. I don't know if you've ever noticed in Scripture, but over and over and over and over again, in the life and the ministry of Jesus, he is explaining in explicit detail to his disciples that he will be crucified and he will raise from the dead. And so, for example, um, in, John, in Matthew chapter 20, the Bible tells us this. It says that Jesus took his 12 disciples aside and he said to them, we're going to go to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they're going to condemn him to death and they're going to deliver him over to the, to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And then look, and he will be raised on the third day. I mean, this is an amazing amount of specificity. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, all right, guys, we're going to go to Jerusalem. Let me just tell you what's going to happen. He's like, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to get get arrested. I'm going to get handed over. I'm going to get beaten and flogged and ultimately crucified. He's like, okay, that's going to happen to me. And then he says, but on the third day, I'm coming back up again. I'm rising again. In no uncertain terms, Jesus told his disciples this was going to happen. And this isn't the only occasion. He says it many times. So in Luke chapter 9, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, to be killed, and on the third day, notice again, be raised. 
And so Jesus is constantly telling his disciples, this is what's going to happen. Going to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to, be in, I'm going to go down into the grave. But on the third day, I'm coming back up. Tell his disciples, listen, guys, just we're on the same page. All right, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to get crucified. Going down in the grave. Third day, coming back up again. Tell him again. And he told them over and over again what was going to happen. And yet the Bible explains to us that now it's the third day. Now it's the third day. And who is at the tomb? Well, nobody. None of the disciples are there. Only Mary Magdalene is at the tomb. Only Mary is. And, she, and when she sees that the tomb is empty, her first response is not that she believes that Jesus rose from the dead. Her first response is she thinks that someone took the body of Jesus. So you can only imagine that the disciples must have been hanging out at their house or wherever they were on the third day. And they probably were talking about everything. And I can't help but wonder if they were like, you know, Jesus said a lot of things about the third day. He was always talking about the third. I feel like there's something important that we should be doing right now, right? I feel like I get this pressing, nagging feeling that I'm forgetting something really important that should be happening, right? Didn't Jesus say something about the third day, right? No one's there. And why is that important? Here's why I think that's important. Because I think for many of us in our modern culture today, we tend to look back at people of antiquity and we tend to think, oh, those people back then, they were so naive, they were so uneducated, of course they could believe in a resurrection. You see, but we modern people, we don't accept superstitious things like that. You see, we now know, we now know because we're so much more advanced than they were that that's something that couldn't take place. See, and I think what this reveals to us is, no, 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 no. Jesus explicitly told his disciples, I'm going to raise on the third day several times. And yet on the third day, no one showed up. Why? Because no one expected this to happen. Nobody did. And I would even say this, whatever it would take to convince the disciples that the resurrection of Jesus actually occurred, I believe it would take the exact same thing for you and I to be convinced that the resurrection of Jesus occurred. Whatever it took for James the brother of Jesus, the little brother of Jesus, to become convinced that his big brother was the son of God who raised from the dead, which is what James died for. I believe that whatever it would take for him to do that is exactly what it would take for you and I to believe that too. These are not gullible people that Jesus is dealing with. These are not just superstitious people. It's not what's happening here. So here's what happens. The Bible says, it's interesting. The Bible says that the disciples go home. They see the empty tomb, they go home. And now Mary is left at the tomb by herself. So the camera is going to pan to Mary. And it's in this context that Mary is going to meet the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus is going to ask her a very penetrating question. Let's take a look at this together. So verse 11. Now Mary stood outside of the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. Now I want you just to notice real quick the posture of Mary in this moment. The Bible says that she was crying and that she wept. Now, in the original language, these words that are used, um, it implies more than just shedding of tears. The idea here is actually more like she was wailing. And so this is, I mean, full body, heaving, crying. This is inconsolable sorrow that Mary's experienced. And the Bible says that she's weeping, she's crying. I mean, you can imagine, this is a woman who put all of her hope and faith in Jesus. And now the one that she had put her hope and she had put her faith in, she thought to be dead. And so the Bible says that she's weeping and she's crying and she looks into the tomb. Verse 12, it says, and she saw two angels in white that were seated where Jesus's body had been. One was at the head and the other one was at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? So the Bible says that Jesus peers in and she sees two angels and they look at her and they say, woman, why are you crying? Watch Mary's response. She says, they've taken my Lord away, 
she said, and I don't know where they have put him. See, Mary, Mary is so full of grief that she doesn't even realize she's talking to two angels. And she just answers them. She says, they've taken Jesus away. They've taken him away. Now watch this. This is so cool. Verse 14. At this, she turned around. Look at this. This is so cool. And she saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't recognize. She didn't realize it was him. Now, now this is real fascinating. It's almost ironic and almost comical that here's Mary who is full of inconsolable grief and sorrow because she has lost, she thinks she has lost Jesus. And she turns around and he is standing right there. He is standing right there. And the Bible tells us that it's in this setting that Jesus is now going to pose a question to her. And this is a penetrating question. And I think it's a very important and fascinating question. Here's what Jesus says. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Now, this is a powerful question. I should mention real quick first, when Jesus says, woman, why are you crying? It's probably worth me mentioning. This is not a derogatory term. Jesus isn't like, woman, why are you crying? Like, that's not what's happening here. This actually was a very endearing term. So Jesus would have been like, dear woman, dear woman. Why are you crying? And then he asks her this question. And again, I think it's a fascinating question. I think it's a penetrating question. He says, who is it that you're looking for? See, now here's the thing. We know, you know, I know, Jesus doesn't ask questions because he's seeking information. He knows the answer to that question. Jesus isn't trying to satisfy his curiosity. So what's behind this question? What is this all about? I I believe this is a question of expectation. I think Jesus looks at her and he says, Mary, who are you expecting to find? Mary, who, who is it that you are looking for? See, because here's the thing. Here's what Jesus knew, and here's what you and I know as well. Mary was looking for a dead Jesus. That's who Mary was looking for. Jesus says, who are you looking for? This is who she was looking for. She was looking for a dead Jesus. Commentators speculate that the reason that Mary was not able to identify Jesus in that moment, the reason that she was not able to recognize him, was because she was not expecting a living Jesus. It's almost like, did you guys ever have that moment when you were a kid, when you ran into a teacher outside of school somewhere? Right, you remember like you're at the store or something, you see a teacher, and, and I, at least maybe it was like this for me as a kid, I would always do a double take, like I almost didn't recognize him because I used to think that teachers lived at school, you know, and so I was like, oh, you're a real person, like what's going on, and it kind of, and I would not recognize them in that setting because I, I wasn't expecting to see them in that setting, and I think that that's kind of what's happening with Mary, Mary, Jesus is standing right there, he is standing right in front of her and she does not recognize him. And he says, who are you looking for? But she's looking for a dead Jesus. That's why she can't see him. Now, now here's the thing. I think this is such an important question. And I think it is equally as relative as it was on the first Easter, as it is today on the 2000th Easter or whatever it is. And so why don't we do this? Let's take the question that Jesus asked and let's let him question us in this room. So here's the question I want to ask you. Who are you looking for? this Easter weekend? Who are you looking for? Because I think that most of us, like Mary, we have a certain expectation and we have a certain understanding of who Jesus is. And my question to you is, who, who is that to you? Maybe, maybe this, might be, this might be a more forthright way to ask this question. So here's another way to say it. 
Why did you come here today? Why are you here? And what is it that you're looking for? And I'm not, I'm not asking that in, in, a, in a, like I'm not, you know, in, a, in some kind of um, belligerent way or whatever. I'm not, not an antagonistic way. I'm just genuinely asking you, just think about it for a minute. Why did you come today? Why are you here? And what is it that you're expecting? Who is it that you're looking for exactly? So because here's the thing. I think for some of us, if we were being real honest, if I asked you, why are you here right now? I think for some of us, like if we were being real honest, we might say this, we might say, you know what? I never even thought about that question. I'm just kind of here because that's just kind of what we do. And it's Easter and it's, and it's a tradition and we come here and then tomorrow we go over to my grandpa's house and we eat food and we do an Easter egg hunt and by three o'clock grandpa's asleep on the couch and by seven o'clock Uncle Joe's had a few too many and he's saying stuff he regrets. That's just Easter for us. That's our family, you know, and, and you might, and honestly, what it is that you might be looking for here today is you might be looking for a tradition. You might be looking for the Jesus of tradition. And maybe that's who, maybe that's who you're looking for. I think for some of you, if you're being real honest, maybe what you're looking for this weekend is you're looking for some inspirational, uh, feel good, a kind of experience. That's why you're here. You're like, yeah, man, it's Easter. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not anti-Jesus. I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. I'm into the whole Jesus thing. And so, yeah, you know, Jesus, Jesus died and he rose again. And I think it's a metaphor. And I think that, yeah, you know, when Jesus was down, he got back up. And so I want to get, you know, I want to, I want to get back up when I'm down too, just like Jesus did. I'm looking for kind of a feel good inspiration. I'm hoping you'll say something that'll, that'll really touch my heart. And I'm hoping the band will play some songs that really just get me motivated. That's what I'm looking for this weekend. And maybe for you, honestly, what you're looking for is you're looking for a Lady Gaga Jesus. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say that? Probably not. So let me give you, let, let me give you a quote. This is what Lady Gaga said. In one interview, she said, I still believe in Santa. He's for sure around. He and the Easter Bunny. I've hung out with them and Jesus Christ a few times. They're, they're just all really good friends and they all do good things for humanity. Now, what is Lady Gaga saying here? I don't really know, but I think, <laughs> I'm not real sure what she's, I don't know what she's doing most of the time, but I think that it's possible that what she's saying here, she's saying, yeah, you know, if, if Jesus makes you feel good, you know, then, yeah, it's good for the kids and it makes people happy, then great. Why would I be anti-Jesus? And for some of us, honestly, that's kind of our approach. The Jesus we're looking for is sort of a feel-good, inspirational kind of Jesus. For some of us, I think if we're being honest, the way we might answer this question, why did you come today? What are you looking for? You might be saying this. You might be saying, I didn't want to come today. Honestly, maybe you got drug here. Maybe your parents drug you or your, your kids drug you or your spouse drug you or your boyfriend or your girlfriend drug you. Either way, you were drugged. That's how you got here today, right? And you're like, I didn't want to come, but I'm here. Or maybe if you were being super honest, some of you might say, I'm not actually looking for Jesus at all. The reason I'm here is because I'm looking for help. I'm having a hard time in my life. Some of you, if you were honest, you might say, I'm not looking for Jesus. I'm looking for a date, which I can't blame you, by the way, because we are undoubtedly the most attractive campus of Grace Church. By a landslide, clause. Yeah, I know, I know, it's true. So, but I think it's a good question, right? Like, why are you here? Really, think about it for me. Why are you here? What are you looking for? I think Jesus would look at us on this Easter weekend. I think he'd ask the same question that he asked in the first Easter. He'd say, who is it that you're looking for? And here's the thing. Is it possible that your expectations might be blinding you from experiencing the real Jesus? 
because it was for Mary. Mary's expectations of who she believed Jesus to be were blinding her from the real Jesus, the resurrected Jesus who was standing before her. Notice what happens, verse 15. Thinking he was the gardener, Mary was like, this must be the gardener. Why? Because I'm expecting a dead Jesus. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, can you tell me where you've put him and I will get him? Man, this is almost, this is almost comedic. That she's like, can you tell me where you put him? And she's talking to him. And so it's not until Jesus reveals himself to her that the coin finally drops. Because watch what happens in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned towards him and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, I don't know how Jesus said this. I wish I could have been there for that moment. Wouldn't that have been cool? But I can't help but wonder how he said it. I wonder if he was like, Mary, you know, like, stop it, you know? I wonder if he was like, Mary. I don't know how he said it, but the Bible says well, the moment he said her name, she recognized, the coin dropped, she realized who it was. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that her reaction was that she clung to Jesus. And the Bible gives us indication that she must have clung on to him for a very long time because eventually Jesus had to say, stop clinging to me. And so her, listen, here you see Mary in a blink of an eye, in a flash, go from inconsolable sorrow and grief to in a moment, to indescribable joy. So you watch Mary in the span of one verse, you watch Mary go from the most dismal, bleak, hopeless situation of her entire life. The one she has put her faith in is dead. And in the very next moment, the very next verse, she goes from from the worst moment of her life to the most monumental moment of her life. Everything changes and the implications are profound. And my question is this, what was it that caused that transformation to take place? What was it? Here's what it was. Mary's expectations were confronted and they were destroyed. And Mary, for the very first time, met the real Jesus, the real Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And you see, when you meet the resurrected Jesus, it's not about religion anymore. It's not about application. It's about implication. Because if Jesus rose, well, then the implications of that are mind-boggling and are far-stretching beyond any of our imaginations. See, for Mary, in that moment, what she thought was irreversible was reversed. What she thought was impossible outside of the realm of possibility happened What she thought was hopeless suddenly became hopeful. What she thought was defeat became victory. And I think what happened to Mary in that moment is she experienced the resurrection. You know, I I was thinking about this this week and I was trying to to just get my mind around, man, how did Mary Mary feel in that instant, in that moment when she realized that the dead Jesus she was looking for was standing in front of her alive? Like, I I can't help but wonder the flood of emotion that came over her and the wonder and the joy and, and just the inexpressible faith that must have just showered her in that moment. And you know, when I was thinking about her response, the closest thing I could think of the picture that kept coming to my, my mind, and I thought that's probably the closest thing in this life that we can imagine that it must have been like, is did you guys ever see those um, YouTube videos where people who are deaf um, regain their hearing for the first time? They're able to hear for the first time. You ever see those videos? Those are amazing. And I, every time I watch those, like I cannot stop 
fighting back tears. And like my wife walks in, she's like, what's going on? I'm like, nothing, I'm fine, you know? And, and, and in, those, in those videos, I, when, I, when I was thinking about Mary, I just thought, man, when I watch the response of these people who are deaf, who through neuroscience now regain their hearing, when I see that, I'm like, that must have been to some extent what it was like. And so I thought maybe if we could just capture it for a minute, I'll just show you a couple of scenes from that. And just think about what, that, what Mary must have experienced in this moment. There you go. It's beeping. So now technically your device is on. <laughs> can you tell? Oh, that's exciting. Here, you can put it down for a second. Just get used to the sound. <laughs> Henry heard his family for the first time. His family in tears at the news. Is it the very content and that? She's like about ready to ball her eyes out, basically. <laughs> Henry has at least several more months in America as he works on his speech and learns to understand what he hears. The journey may not be over, but Aaron couldn't be happier with where it was today. Technically, we're on. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah. Hear my voice? <laughs> How's it sound? I'm sorry. <laughs> Can you hear your voice? Yeah. I'm a little loud. Yeah, you're going to have to get used to that. What about that? And you just let me know if everything sounds normal, okay? Okay. Five, four, three, two, one. You sound good, honey? Yeah. All right, we're going to play some music for you. How's that sound? Get ready, baby. Say there is Hi, those videos every single time I, I can't help but think to myself why is it that every time I watch those I get full of emotion and and have to choke back tears and why is it that in the moment you can always see it when a person regains their hearing you can see it in their face something changes and you watch hope and you watch joy and you watch something flood in and I, I remember when I was watching that a while ago I was like why is that why is that something that we all long for? Why is that something that just feels so right? And I think I realize what it is. I think it's because God has put in every single one of our hearts the resurrection. Because think about it. What is the resurrection exactly? The resurrection is what we thought was irreversible is reversed. The resurrection is that we, what we thought was lost has actually been given back. Resurrection is what we thought was hopeless and dismal is suddenly the greatest moment of victory. That's what it is. It is that everything sad comes untrue. That's what the hope of the resurrection 
tells us, this is why in the book of Revelation, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Revelation tells us that the hope of the resurrection brings us to a place where one day every tear will be wiped away, every disease will be gone, death will be destroyed, and there will be no more crying, there will be no more tears. And all of that is only available because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you see, what was it that caused Mary to go from inconsolable grief and sorrow to unbelievable joy? What was it? It wasn't religion. It wasn't like, here's some good teaching to apply to your bad situation. It wasn't, here's some good morals. To... No, 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 no. It was an event. Something happened. And Jesus rose from the dead, and the implications of that radically changed her and the disciples and history forever. See, see, because here's the thing. Those of us who follow Jesus, what we believe, the foundation of what Christianity is all about, it is not a religion. It is not on applications. It is based on an event. And we believe that Jesus Christ literally and historically rose from the dead. That 2,000 years ago, there was a historical event that happened in real time and in real space. It wasn't some ethereal metaphor. It wasn't like, oh, you know, Jesus, Jesus got back up when he was down so we can get back up when we're down. That's not what it was. A real event that happened in space and time. And because of that, the, the implications are mind-blowing and they are far-stretching beyond our, even, even our own imagination because if the resurrection didn't happen, all we have for those of us who follow Jesus, is religion. We have some good teachings from Jesus, which is fine, and we have the example of his life, which is good. But we don't have the implications of a risen Jesus. And that's what changes everything, and that's what's at the core of the heart of what Christianity is all about. I think this is why the Apostle Paul says this. He says, if, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people to be most pitied. I want you to notice what Paul says, but I also want you to notice what he doesn't say. Here's what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, if the resurrection didn't happen, so if you don't buy that or you don't believe that or you don't accept that, like if you think it's a metaphor, no big deal. You can just take the teachings of Jesus and apply them to your life and you'll be good, you'll be good with that. That's fine. It's not what he says. Nor does he say, hey, listen, if you don't believe in the resurrection, like if you think it's all an allegory or whatever, or you have a hard time accepting it, it's fine. Why don't you just pattern your life out of the good, uh, you know, model that Jesus, so he was selfless, so you'd be selfless, and you'll be a better person because of it. That's not what he says. Look at the language he uses here. He says, if Christ has not been raised, if the resurrection didn't happen, he says, our preaching is useless, your faith is useless, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, those who have fallen asleep or have died are lost. And he says, and then if Christ didn't, if we only have uh, hope in Christ in this life, we are to be of all most pitied, is what he says. What's he saying? Here's what he says. I've said it before, but it's worth saying again. What the Apostle Paul is saying is he's saying, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what we are doing right now is a colossal waste of time. Is a waste of your time, is a waste of my time, because Christianity is not application-based. It's implication-based. Something happened and something changed. And so here's the question I want to leave you with here tonight. And this is it. Who are you looking for? Is it possible that the Jesus that you expect, the Jesus that you understand, is it possible that that might be blinding you from the real Jesus? And then here's the other question. Have you met the resurrected Christ? Have you met him?
Because I believe if you have not dealt with the resurrected Jesus, then you're not dealing with the real one. Jesus himself wouldn't allow it. The Bible wouldn't allow it. Those who founded, uh, the, those who, 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 who initially, the disciples who initially spread the message of the gospel wouldn't allow it. The whole thing is built off of this. So I'll leave you with these questions. And as we sing, we pray, I want you to process through them together. I'm gonna ask the band to come up and as they settled in, I just want to, I want to finally just address three audiences and then we're finished, okay? So audience number one is this. If you are a follower of Jesus, so if you're, if you're a person that would say, yes, I have met the resurrected Christ, I have put my hope and my faith in this Jesus. If that's you, then I would just say that, man, in a moment, we're gonna sing together and I would encourage you to sing like you got something to sing about because you do, you do. This, what we're celebrating this weekend is the foundation of everything that we've built our faith and our hope and our trust on. And so we can sing about this. If this didn't happen, then we're to be the most pitied of all men. But because it did, we can sing with thanksgiving in our hearts. I'd encourage you to do that. The second audience, if you're a person that's investigating Jesus, and maybe for you, you're like, you know, I'm not a church person, or maybe you even are a church person. Maybe you grew up in the church, but for some reason today, and Jesus is making sense in a way it's never made, he's never made sense before. And if that's the case, if God is working in your heart and, 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 and there's something in you that just is saying, man, you know what? I know, I know you're right. I know what you're saying is right. So I believe that it is very possible that the resurrected Christ is revealing himself to you. And I would encourage you to come to him and to meet him and to embrace him. Because here's what Romans 10 says. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and then look at this, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And if you've never embraced a resurrected Christ, I would encourage you to do that today. And between your heart and God's heart, you can just talk to him and you can just say, Jesus, I believe what you've done through the resurrection. And I, I embrace that for the very first time. And I would encourage you, by the way, that if you decide to do that, would you let us know about that? Because we, we actually have a connection card and, and you can let us know that you decided to start following Jesus. And the only reason we wanna know that is so we can help you. We want to help give you resources. We want to talk about what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? What does that look like? We'd love to get you connected. We'd love to help in any way possible. And then the third audience, if you're a person right now who's just really skeptical about the whole thing, and maybe you're like, you know what? I understand what you're saying and everything, but man, I don't know. If you're, if you're asking me to really truly believe in a resurrected Jesus, like if that's what you're really asking me, I don't know if I can do that, man. Like that's a, that's a, that's a big pill to swallow. I don't know if, I, I don't know if I'm prepared to do that. I think I need more answers. I think I, need, I think I have questions that I need to figure out first. And listen, I would encourage you, if that's you, I totally understand that. I would encourage you, if you would, take that Connect card and let us know. We would love, I would love to give you resources. There is an unbelievable amount of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you, man, don't let that question, don't let that question just hang open. Seek after it, because here, here's what I do know. I know this that if Jesus did raise from the dead, Christianity is of supreme importance. The implication, if Jesus rose from the dead, the implications of that are massive. This, this is the most important thing if he did. If he did not raise from the dead, Christianity is of no importance, none. It's a big waste of time. But here's what I know for certain. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. It cannot be of moderate import. It can't be like, yeah, I'm sort of a Christian every once in a while, kind of. That's what I kind of believe. I don't, no, no, 
that you're not dealing with the resurrected Jesus if this is the way that you're coming to. And so I would just say that if you're a person that's on the fence, don't stay there. Being on the fence is a choice. And pursue it, go after it, find answers. We would love to sit down with you and talk about this. We believe this is the most important question that you can answer. Did he rise or didn't he? Because everything stems from this. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we just want to say thank you so much for your death and for your burial and for your resurrection. The resurrection, the implications open up a world of possibilities that seem utterly impossible to us. The resurrection communicates to us that that which was irreversible has somehow been reversed, that everything sad is coming untrue. And Jesus, that's the kind of hope that we need. We don't need more good advice. We don't, we don't need more good you know, moral teaching. We, we, need, we, need, we need a God who's defeated death, who can give us real hope. And so, Jesus, I pray that even today that you would reveal yourself, the resurrected Christ, that you would reveal yourself to those here today, Father, who maybe have never met you before. Would you, in the same way that you spoke Mary's name, would you speak to their heart? And Father, as we worship and we sing, would we, with a heart of gratitude, be able to express just the thankfulness for what you did for us? Thank you for the cross, and thank you, thank you for Easter. It is what everything hinges on God, the implications of that, oh my gosh, if you rose, my goodness. And so, Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude and help us to really ponder and worship and think through the majesty of what you've accomplished. We pray in Jesus' name.